Where does it start? 17 years old, high and drunk, driving a stolen car, being chased by police. Okay. Interesting. Tell me more. (laughs) That was my reality. I was trying to get away from the police. Obviously, I, I grew up in a pretty challenging environment and... I had a handgun sitting next to me in a backpack, and I told myself before I sold the car that if the police caught up or got me, I was going to pull the gun and let them do their job. And you know, I ended up smashing into the side of a house, and when I went to pull the gun, it got stuck. And I kept pulling on it and pulling on it, and before I could even get it out, the police opened the car door, grabbed me, my feet didn't even touch the ground, and they threw me in the back of the cop car. So ended up in adult jail for the severity of my crimes, got released to a rehab center called Portage. I was helping Rick, one of the maintenance guys, clean out this cabin. It was an old church camp. In there, I found this old 486 computer, an old yellow book on Java programming sitting next to it. I opened it up and I always thought, I never touched a computer really prior to that point. I just thought computers were written in hexadecimal numbers and zeros and ones. And here was this this language, it almost read like English. And I just booted up the computer and followed the instructions in chapter one. And by the end of, uh, you know, 25 minutes, I had the computer saying, hello world. Not many entrepreneurial stories start this way, do they? The voice you just heard is that of Dan Martell, my guest on this month's episode of The Struggle. I'm your host, Alex Thuma. Beyond being a dad, a husband, and a Canadian, Dan would tell you that his defining characteristics are someone who is driven, someone who constantly asks what is possible, and what does he need to do to fulfill his dreams and goals. We know where, when, and how his entrepreneurial story begins, but what has followed since is interesting, tough, and educational. A lot of it was, in his words, soul-crushing. It took him nearly 10 years and two failed companies to get a better idea of how to do business right. That coupled with coming across the book Love is the Killer App, gave him the knowledge to be able to be successful. 15 years and three more companies after, Dan has managed to achieve successful exits, all the while learning a massive amount of lessons when it comes to running SaaS companies. This total of 25 years from that night when he was 17, and the honesty with which he's able to speak about them makes him a treasure trove, and I'm grateful for knowing him and speaking with him for this podcast. Hope you enjoy the interview and pick up some lessons that he's offering in our extended conversations. Welcome to this episode of The Struggle. Dan Martell, welcome Dan. Hey, Alex. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm super pumped. Great to have you on the show. I think we've had you on the, the SaaS Revolution show before where we spoke about your SaaS demo, right? But first time on The Struggle where we get founders like yourself, some founders that have been very successful, had a number of exits, again, like yourself, and some that actually haven't quite managed to make it and, and perhaps have had to shut down their business. But ultimately, we're looking for the talk about challenges in being an entrepreneur, being a founder, running a business, running a SaaS business. I think you've a great story, as most entrepreneurs, I think, probably have as well, but don't often talk about that other side, right? Yeah. Looking forward to it. Dan, before we get into it, maybe not everybody's heard of you. Tell us a little bit about who is Dan Martell. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting question. Entrepreneur, father, proud husband, Canadian. Those are kind of like the the describers. But I mean, at the core, because I don't think any of those things really define a person, 
I'm a driven dude. Like I just, I am continuously asking myself what's possible and who do I need to become to achieve the kind of dreams and goals I've set for myself and pushing the, the limit of really just squeezing the juice out of every day and the time we're here on earth because it's short and I don't want to ever feel like I get to the end of it and look back and didn't push myself where I knew I could have. Yeah, no, no, I think on the driven side, I mean, you can only just look at your LinkedIn profile or, or CV or, or whatever and see being a five-time founder with three exits, right? There's got to be drive there because I think uh, a lot of people would probably do one startup, one exit, and perhaps uh, quit never again. But um, definitely there's drive there. You've still got the fire to... Uh... I'm just getting started, Alex. That's what yeah. I look at. I'm not even 40 yet, man. I'm just getting started. Do, do we not, I mean, not going off on a tangent there, but is there like, are there any sort of cases of entrepreneurs that are like 10 times founders or with loads of exits? Do we know who's had the most or is that no. a typical case? I mean, you do meet every once. I met a guy the other day that had like seven or something. Sometimes you could ask yourself like quantity versus quality. Yeah. Even for myself, like those are like five corporations, companies I led. First two were complete failures. The last three were all of them were multi-million dollar outcomes, life-changing for me in many ways. And I think a lot of people, they're essentially like aqua hires that they throw in as an exit, but no judgment. But I really think it's just about enterprise value creation. And, and even more part, it's like just impact, dude. Like the exit stuff's cool from a business point of view, but what I'm most jazzed up about and the work that you get to do as well is just the impact we have to have on other people by creating community and sharing stories and inspiring a whole generation of people we may never ever meet yeah no, absolutely and obviously whilst this podcast is not about me or about sastock i think that absolutely one of the biggest rewards that we have about what we do is just the value that we add to people in the community that we're building and bringing in people like yourself to the conferences to help other founders and the feedback we get from that is in that it is life-changing for other founders in many ways so that's why we do what we do and we love it um Getting back to you, like, so five startups that you founded. So you were an entrepreneur for a long time. Where does the story of your entrepreneurship start? Uh, where does it start? 17 years old, high and drunk, driving a stolen car, being chased by police. Okay. Interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> that was my reality. I was trying to get away from the police. Obviously, I, I grew up in a pretty challenging environment and... I had a handgun sitting next to me in a backpack and I told myself before I sold the car that if the police caught up or got me, I was going to pull the gun and let them do their job. And you know, I ended up smashing into the side of a house and when I went to pull the gun, it got stuck. And I kept pulling on it and pulling on it and before I could even get it out, the police opened the car door, grabbed me, my feet didn't even touch the ground and they threw me in the back of the cop car. So I woke up sober the next morning, really just wondering what my life was going to look like. It was through that experience of just realizing somebody was looking out for me because I wasn't supposed to be alive. I just pleaded with whoever, your creator, whatever you want to call them, and just asked if somebody would help me get through this. That at the time, I didn't even have anything ambitious to commit to. Just I would be a better person. I would change my life. I would do the things I knew I should have been doing. And that, that ended up in a fairly long journey. Ended up in adult jail for the severity of my crimes. Got released to a rehab center called Portage. Or I did 11 months of therapy. I mean, working deeply on my emotions, my anger issues, my ADHD, my belief systems, my values, and rebuilding the trust that I'd lost with my family and my friends. And it was at the end of that program of a lot of deep work that I was helping Rick, one of the maintenance guys, clean out this cabin. It was an old church camp. 
And uh, there was this cabin that nobody ever went into. It was full of stuff. And in there, I found this old 486 computer, an old yellow book on Java programming sitting next to it. And I opened it up and I always thought, I never touched a computer really prior to that point. I just thought computers were written in hexadecimal numbers and zeros and ones. And here was this this language it almost read like English. And I just booted up the computer and followed the instructions in chapter one. And by the end of, uh, you know, 25 minutes, I had the computer saying, hello world. And I thought I was the, uh, <laughs> the smartest kid. in the world. It was so funny that the shift in belief a year prior, having literally no self-worth, no self-esteem, no nothing to just a moment in time where all of a sudden I feel like I'm a secret genius of this computer world and and I just never touched a computer. So that's why I didn't know. And turns out I was so far from the truth. It's hilarious. But the good news is sometimes ignorance is bliss. And it was that moment that got me really software became my new addiction. And I would say business, the personal development program that really forced me to become the person I am today. And shortly after I discovered this thing called the internet, which turned out to be kind of a big deal. And that's my love. I just, I don't take it for granted every day I wake up going, how cool is it that we can build stuff and share it with the world in a click, you know, cause I grew up, my dad, you know, worked as a engineer and a plant and I never seen anything he ever did. And everything I've ever built has been publicly available for other people to look at and scrutinize and give feedback on. And I just think that's a really cool world. Yeah, absolutely. And a great story there as well. And so then from that moment, what followed a couple of failures in, you said your first, your first couple of startups were, sure. were failures in, in respect, but experiences as well. But also with those failures, I think it's, it's learned that the experiences within building those were ones that were included some stuff that you didn't like. Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where I love to ask founders, like how many domains have you bought for projects you started? That's the real question, right? Yeah. Because that number can be in a couple dozens to one of my buddy. I mean, he's in like 300 domains, some of these high quick start ideation guys. But like, here's what I've learned is like maritimevacation.ca launched it in 97. It was essentially VRBO before VRBO. And my dad had a cottage. He had a few friends that had a cottage. We live in this small town, Eastern Canada at the time. And I just, you know, I wanted to flex my programming skills and it was, it's always better to build something that's real. And the challenge for me at that mindset, I don't know if anybody listening can relate. It's just coming from a small town. Like you're just, your belief system is so small. So I, I it never occurred to me that anybody outside of maybe the 30 cottages in that area would ever want to use maritimevacation.ca. So the guy from at the cottage.com, he ended up kicking my ass because he took a bit, a bit more global view and a bigger opportunity and built a better solution. I mean, even the fact that I called it .ca in hindsight was... So that one there, I just... It, it sucked. But at the same time, I don't know. I just feel like I learned a really great lesson about planning for success. I think most people don't plan for it. They hope it, but there's really simple decisions we can make in the early days, like the domain name, like a name how you set up the corporate structure, et cetera, even how you do partnerships that can transform your approach. So that was maritime vacation was a great lesson, although it failed. Next up was a hosting company. I started with my brother because I was building web apps for people and everybody has this dream of getting paid every month. It was like the early days of SaaS. And I mean, these are the days where I had to buy the hardware. We literally each took out like a $10,000 line of credit bought the servers, bought the software, Microsoft stack. And I spent most of my time in a server room, freezing my setting up email servers and databases and web apps, web servers. And the mistake we made was just 
selling to a client that was way above our abilities. And we ended up getting one of the local banks. And I mean, we just underpricing everybody. And, I mean, it's just it, like, I don't know. To me, I just take this as like normal entrepreneurial lessons. So, that's what I tell people. Like, if you're impressed, I'm not. I'm just lucky that I started really young. I started when I was 17. So by the time I kind of finally figured it out when I was 24, 26, I just had almost a decade of trying and building. And like, that's the thing, like really trying, not like entrepreneuring, not ideation, like literally pay me, build something. Uh Oh, lesson learned. Hopefully I don't go bankrupt this time. And it was funny because the whole time I was doing it, and obviously I put my parents through a lot as a kid, my dad would still plead with me to go get a job. And I would laugh because I'm like, man, I'm actually not doing anything illegal right now. And I think it's pretty cool. I would, you know, and you're sort I would just support what I'm doing because it's a positive thing. So yeah, there's been so many lessons learned. And at the time they're soul crushing. And I think with time you get through it and you get perspective. And flow town and clarity, they're a little bit more successful than the first two or well, they were successful in terms of they yeah. they were your first exits right my first exit was spheric technology so spheric i started when i was 24 what shifted for me there was when i was 23 and thinking like and after the second failed one nb host because me and my brother both lost our shirts and it was not cool I kind of took some time off to just kind of try stuff and try a different approach. And, and it was really when I was like 23, I came across a book called Love is a Killer App by Tim Sanders. And I never read business books, which is weird because when I got out of rehab, I actually like devoured programming books. I would go to the local bookstore and I, I bought every book on database programming, web design and architecture. I even studied to become a Microsoft certified solutions developer. And I got my two certifications. Like I read a lot. I just didn't read any business or personal development. And at 23, I come across this book called Love is a Killer App because it's got the word killer app in it. The guy was COO of Yahoo, which resonated with me. And I was so not a reader that I didn't even buy the book. I bought the audio CDs. And that just sent me on a different path. And since then, I've read over a thousand business and marketing and personal development books and continue to read voraciously. And I don't think I would have succeeded had I not discovered that book. Why? And I don't have to look very far to a lot of my friends that I went to high school with that are still six, seven companies in just trying to figure it out. And they refuse to educate themselves, which is almost like... I know you read a lot because I follow you on Instagram. It's just kind of par for the course, I think. It's how am I supposed to know how to do this stuff if nobody's ever shown me before? And Yeah, that... So Sphere was two things happened. I started to read shortly after I read a book called The E-Myth that argued uh, the point to build a repeatable, scalable system. And I ended up hiring a coach, an Emith coach at 2324, right before I started Sphere. At the time, paying 1500 bucks a month for two phone calls. And I didn't have the money. And that investment in myself and having somebody who had helped many other successful entrepreneurs get there, he himself was really successful as well. And he'd been working with like a dozen clients. That I think those two things are the real reasons why I finally succeeded because had I not get a, gotten a new perspective, I would have probably just made the same old mistakes or new mistakes, but still they would have been company killing mistakes instead of just, oh, that's annoying. Let's keep moving. That experience or, or investment in yourself, I guess not only you had the investment in yourself in the reading, right? Uh, but there was also getting that coach and spending the 1500 bucks a month for, as you said, two calls per month. Was that the sort of inspiration for clarity? 
No, I mean, Clarity... So Clarity is a marketplace for entrepreneurs to get advice over the phone. The inspiration for that was getting bombarded. After I sold my company, Flowtown, it was a lot of press and tech crunch and back home in my local town, like small town kid does big in San Francisco kind of thing. And I just got a bunch of entrepreneurs reaching out that wanted to chat. And I'm very open. I try to connect with people, do right by my Canadian DNA. And I just couldn't respond to the inbound volume. So I built this little app that created like an auto resp- uh, a call list. So essentially, you could put your name and number. So I would just reply to the email and say, I'd love to chat, put your, you know, fill this out. And when I get a chance, I'll call you. And if we can talk, great. If not, I'll keep you on my list and I'll call you next time I get a chance. But it was this I, on the back end, I built this automated system that essentially I'd hit start calls. And then it would like go through the list and it would say like, Alex, and, and like some robotic voice wants to talk about. And then it would try to read what you wrote in the notes. And then it would just call you on your cell, but it would hide my cell because obviously I didn't want, you know, hundreds of entrepreneurs that I don't know to have my number. And if we talked great and then it moved to the next person, it was just automated. So I could drive for an hour and a half, two hours and cut through like 10 calls. And so that was like the version. That was the thing I built for myself. And then what happened was is I did that one night where I tweeted out my Clarity link. It was called Clarity.fm because I just needed a domain to host it. And I went to the roof of the uh, condo build I was living in. And I just tweeted out, like, if you're a startup founder and you need advice, let's talk. And it was almost like a radio talk show because it would just keep queuing people up. So I didn't even know how many people I had. I just figured I'll just keep talking until it finishes up. And I ended up spending almost two and a half, three hours talking to entrepreneurs into the night. And as I looked down across San Francisco, because we were in the mission, I just realized that there are literally four, five, six, ten thousand 10,000 entrepreneurs that would love to make themselves available to other entrepreneurs that are across the world that just don't have access, right? Because I was that entrepreneur living in Eastern Canada that didn't grow up with any entrepreneurial friend in tech. Entrepreneurial friend, let alone in tech, Right. And I just thought, man, how crazy would it be if I could connect everybody through a phone call and I just couldn't sleep? Like the moment I had that idea, I just literally could not sleep. My fiance at the time, Renee, my wife now, mother of my children, she'd like get out of bed at four in the morning. I'd be sitting there working on wireframes and she'd be just like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I can't sleep until I finish this. And that was the beginning of Clarity that ended up being an incredible plot to this day. I still hear about it. I mean, we, we exited the company in 2014, but it still grows because it's a marketplace that built the flywheel. It's really neat because I, I still have, I got access to the admin panel still. Yeah, I think I've probably never mentioned this to you before, but before I started SaaStock and I guess the first iteration of the first idea amongst uh, sort of many was that I build this software magazine. Initially, I had, I think I literally bought the domain softwaremagazine.com and then changed it to Sascribe, which was the first, it was really a, a blog. But the idea that I build this software magazine, which is funny now because you see Nathan Lack has got his magazine and FE International, they got SASMAG. And I was like, I've never been an entrepreneur. I don't know what to do. And I looked and I saw like, online Nathan Chan, who's a founder magazine in Australia. He was on Clarity. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll book a call with Nathan. And so I had a call with Nathan via Clarity and had a good conversation with him. And then kind of like one thing led to another and uh, started Sascribe and led on to, to Sastock. So Clarity was uh, certainly involved in... Uh, hey, that's in, so in cool, case. man. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. That's... Uh... Yeah. I mean, we, we, we ended up doing hundreds of thousands of calls a year. So, I mean, you just, you got to assume that a lot of those stories, I just, we never did a good job of really surfacing them. Yeah. Um, but I love, like, I appreciate you sharing that because at the end of the day, it wasn't a venture backed company. So people always ask why I exited it. 
to build the business to make, you know, the billion dollar outcome, it would have required it to be more of expert network and really selling to hedge funds and VCs and private equity folks. And it just wasn't what I started to build. It turns out, as you've discovered, I'm assuming with your events, that the percentage of entrepreneurs, the community of entrepreneurs in the world, the percent of all those entrepreneurs that actually will invest in themselves in buying a book, let alone paying for an event, let alone paying for access, is a lot smaller than the total market. So my original market sizing was anybody with a Twitter account. Turns out that's not the business model, nor was going to build it. But man, I love building that company. I did 1,300 calls myself you know, in a two-year period. And I love what Will at uh, startup.com has done with the company and just continue to... Didn't break it, didn't mess it up, didn't change too much, and continues to add value in the world. So that's cool. Awesome. Awesome. Going back to Sway Technology, so you started that when you were 24. And during that time, I think you must publicly sort of written about this, but you were very stressed, working 100 hours a week, operating on very little sleep, three to four hours per night. And, you know, felt that you didn't really necessarily have anybody to kind of like turn to. And a lot of SaaS founders know about that. What did you need to know, like back then, which everybody should know, like now? Yeah, I mean, so what happened was, is, you know, Sphere was an enterprise portal company. And we just got lucky that we got some big customers earlier on, some big uh, pharma companies out of New Jersey as clients. And we were really quick to build an integration partnership with this company called Plumtree out of San Francisco. So being that we were Canadian, we had great talent and there was this huge opportunity in the market that we filled. So we grew about 154%, I think, every year for four years. But after two years, if you've ever skinned, I'm sure (laughs) with an events business, you've run into those, you can actually do well, but then there's this big sound of cash switch, you know, sucking out of your business because growth, that's what growth requires. And here I am two years in, we were probably 16 employees, million and a half in revenue, but growing like crazy. And I'm looking, we just hired like three new people. I got to train them. I got to get all their equipment, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking at my pipeline and the bank account and it's December and I'm not seeing enough deals to cover the team and make payroll come January. And two things happened for me at the end of the year, obviously New Year's Eve, which is always a time to reflect on how you've done the previous year and either drink because you're really proud of yourself or drink because you're super depressed about lack of progress. And I was looking at potentially having another failed company because I just couldn't figure out how I was going to make it work. And the other thing that happens for me at the end of the year is my birthday is on December 26, which is, you know, like a double whammy of like, I'm a year older and it's a year later and everybody else is on vacation and I'm in the office trying to figure out how I'm going to make this work. And it was really like, so I was like crazy depression. And I remember cold emailing the prime minister of the province, which is like our governor. Cause I I just asked myself like, okay, if I had to make a list of anybody that would care if I failed as an entrepreneur, right? If I died, not as a person, but as a business, who would care? And we had a lot of employees. We were growing quick. All of our revenue was US dollars. So there's export revenue. And I just figured maybe he would, maybe he could introduce to me somebody at the government or another person that could kind of look at the business and give me some advice. And I just cold email. It was like one o'clock in the morning on like December 28th or something like that. And he wasn't even the prime minister anymore. He was, um, sorry, the premier. See the premier? Yeah. Anyways, one of those, the governor essentially. And he replied within 20 minutes. And he must have been festives and doing himself. But he just replied and said, these are three people you need to meet and gave me the names. And those three people I cold... At first, I searched. One of them, this guy named Jerry Pond, if you search his name, he looks like 
he looks like a grumpy old man. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to email this guy. Cause like, he's just going to make fun of me and tell me I'm an idiot. And luckily I was in a spot of there really wasn't no other option. Like there was nowhere else for me to go, but I was at the bottom and I cold emailed all three and they all got back to me within a day. And I'll never forget that. Like at that point, like we, uh, dude, we take for granted that we like network and talk to people and stuff. Like at the time, my mindset, my beliefs were who would, why would this successful guy take a call from somebody he doesn't know? And all three replied. And one of them, Steve said, uh, let's meet on Sunday at, at um, 7 a.m. at a coffee shop. And I thought it was a weird time. And we met. And I was super nervous. And he looked at my business. This guy was a COO of one of the top technology companies in the province, in the state. And he just showed me exactly where I went wrong. Like It was so obvious to him. He goes, oh, you weren't tracking utilization. You didn't understand your ramp time. And it was just a bad decision. Had you had the financial optics, you wouldn't have made. And I was like, so what do I do now? And told me what I had to do, which wasn't great. But then he also helped me work on a pricing strategy where I could get clients to pay me up front for, for half the contract so that it would help cash flow the business better. I mean, that advice alone was the reason why I succeeded. And even the other guy, Jerry Pond, I mean, he invited me the next week to go visit him the two hour drive away where he lived. And after 30 minutes of meeting with him in his boardroom, he like just said one sec, got up and got his whole executive team and brought them in and says, uh, you guys need to meet this guy because he's got some really smart ideas. And I'm like, now I'm, I'm like, what the hell did he just hear? Because I don't think I shared anything positive. And he was just blown away by the fact how I had a core team of just builders and every other business function I'd outsource and automated. Cause I didn't want to run them. Like I was such a tech nerd that I was like, I don't want to deal with HR. I don't want to deal with finance. I don't want to deal with marketing. I'm going to build, I'm going to partner with other people to do that part. We're just going to do the heavy lifting, the software development. So I don't know, man, I just, that touched me so much. I think when people ask me like, why do you go out of your way to host every week, every other week? Like last night I had a founder come to my house for dinner guy that needed some help. He was in a tough spot. And I said, you buy dinner for the family. So I loop in my wife and you show up and we'll have a conversation. And he did. I'll do that for people I know. But every week or two weeks, I host the founder's lunch. And it's an open lunch where if people reach out, they want to fly in, they can. And we go out for lunch and they get to meet other entrepreneurs because like those three people like transformed everything for me. And it was, yes, the business, but more the belief that unless you have something to offer, nobody's going to help you. And that is just so not the case. And that was everything for me. No, no, I mean, that's like a great story in that these three, well, first of all, the, the governor, the premier, 1am responded to you in 20 minutes. And perhaps maybe if it wasn't the festive season, he might not have, but he probably would have got back to you the next day. That's certainly in his character. Uh, but yeah, it shows the importance in, I think, for founders to surround themselves, if they can, with people that can perhaps a little bit further ahead of them uh, if they have that sort of luxury or to even just, as you said, like seek that advice. You did it with a cold email, right? And so not everybody has that kind of luxury. You see a lot of the like VC-backed founders, they have access to great networks, right? Courtesy of the VCs. And so they have this almost an advantage, although they've made their luck to have a great company to be invested in, right? But often perhaps like smaller bootstrap founders or those that have raised less capital or VCs don't have as great network, they should still look to reach out to people, whether it's like yourself or it's governors on local entrepreneurs. I'm sure like there are other people or generally, I think like most entrepreneurs, like they know what it Nobody is self-made, you know what I mean? Yeah, like that's yeah. the whole myth, right? And yeah. one framework that I coach my clients on is the idea of the dream 100. 
and really being thoughtful about like, let's define the peers, the mentors and the advisors that you need to get where you want to go. Because what I've learned personally, it's at a certain point, it's a who, not how thing. I think too often people think it's a skill set. And for me, it's a mindset and the mindset, the fastest way to develop that is environment and people and the power of people. So if you build that list of a hundred people that, you know, if you over the next two years, three years could get to know and spend more time with that would just from being around them, inspire you, introduce you to new ideas, help you answer some of your toughest problems. It's almost makes it inevitable that you're going to succeed. And the cool part is that even if you don't succeed in your current business, which I'm not like, I don't really care anymore about winning at every business per se. Cause if you don't stop playing the game, you're going to win. Like just you play a long enough time horizon. Like who cares if the current business isn't the thing? Because if you're a good person, you always you have integrity and you do what you say. As my buddy Jason Gaynard says, I mean, he essentially said, you know, the banks can take everything I own, my savings accounts, my house, et cetera, but they can't take my network. And with that, I've learned that you literally can start from zero and move really fast if you have people in your court. That's something you got to be thoughtful about and, and invest in. One thing, and this is not meant to, there wasn't this intentional kind of segue into this, but what we do, I guess, like with SaaS Society, what I've seen in the last uh, couple of editions is just you get the group of founders together and they're all at similar, but some a little bit further ahead than others. So like in Asia recently, we had somebody that was at 30 million ARR and we also had somebody that was struggling to get to 2 million ARR, right? In the same room, the same conversation and just letting people open up, talk about their challenges together, provide that advice. And it's great that founders do this. As you said, nobody is kind of self-made. People want to help other people. They want to see people succeed. They don't want to see people fail. And that's what we try to kind of embody with the SaaS Society sort of retreats. And it was nice. We got a message from one of the attendees about her being reinvigorated and coming back with enthusiasm because she was feeling a bit flat before, you know, she came into that. And it's nice to be able to you know, do what you do, do what we do and provide that. Alex, kind of I, I truly, like, truly believe I got a video coming out on my YouTube channel, like, because somebody asked me recently, I was speaking to a, a group of my clients and somebody asked, Hey, Dan's great strategies, tactics, frameworks, all good stuff. But if you had to start over, what's the one thing you would change or do differently? And it's a hundred percent that I would have gotten in a room faster. And I just like literally your room, SaaS society. I don't care if EO, YPO, SaaS Academy, my thing. I don't care what it is. You get in a room of other peers and a lot of the heavy lifting takes care of itself. And you can't do it just once because if that was the case, everybody would win. You need to do it on a consistent basis. Yeah. I really think that, you know, if I had to choose one thing out of everything I've done and there's thousands, that would be the first order for me. You've obviously been sharing some of the challenges, the struggles that you've experienced from being an entrepreneur, from, well, from being 17 years old and through your entrepreneurial journey. Have you ever felt sort of reluctant to share these stories? Because certainly when I think, or even just three years ago, when I was like reading media, reading about entrepreneurship, it was it was all success porn, right? And uh, everybody kind of patting themselves on the back. Now we're starting to see a bit more about like vulnerability kind of out there and then people saying, actually, you know what, this is fucking hard. Have you felt reluctant like before to kind of share this? And yeah. yeah, well, I mean, the truth is my personal story of what I went through as a teenager, I didn't share for 15 years. Nobody knew that. My wife didn't know it. Nobody. And it was really at an event uh, in Toronto about five years ago that the organizer, before I went on stage, like the morning of, I was speaking the afternoon, said, hey, I just want you to know that we're doing a um, charity donation for the best talk. 
Right. And I just, and it was 25 grand. And for me, it was Portage, the place that saved my life, my rehab, the rehab center. I I go three times a year. I speak with the kids. I always tell them if you get out and stay clean for at least a year, you can email me and I'll help you create any dream possible that you can imagine. So 25 grand was real money. And I knew I wasn't going to win that talking about growth hacking. So yeah, sometimes you need a strong why to really open up and give yourself reason. And this is not like everybody should head to the blog or to the Facebook lives or Instagram or whatever and, and share their deepest secrets. I think there's context and there needs to be a reason for why. And I think time needs to pass. Like I also feel a little weird when people have something major happen to them and the next day they're writing about it because there's just not enough time to really build perspective and to understand the true lessons out of that opportunity, right? Like when we were building Flowtown, we got shut down. Like literally we were, I think we had 20,000 customers and we were about to close our series A and something happened with the Facebook data policy. It wasn't even anything we did. We got part of that in 2000, I think it was 11. And our product had three months before Facebook was shutting down a key component of it. And it was like, for my co-founder, Ethan, at the time, I mean, it was debilitating for him. The good news is, and this is what I hope people take away from this, is we become the person who can deal. We become the person who can take the punch. And it's not that the punches stop coming. If anything, they still get bigger the more you dream and you grow and you push, but you get stronger. So like for me, what was the question again? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, good one. I was asking about you kind of share how long it took for you to share your struggles. Yeah. So to me, it's like in hindsight, a year later, when we finally exit the company, like nobody knew we went through that, right? So we had to rebuild the business, go through it. And then we went from zero to 11 months later, being back at the same MRR level, totally different product, totally different customer segment. Now we had a lot to leverage, but we had to go through that work. And it wasn't until like way past that moment that I could sit back and go, what did I learn about that? Well, I learned that you shouldn't be so dependent on one data provider. It's called concentration risk, not a good thing. And this is true for a lot of people listening might have one customer being 80% of the revenue or one partner being 80% of their lead gen, very dangerous. I learned that there's value in building assets like for us in that case, the blog, right? That generated like 350,000 uniques per month because the truth is it was a fire hose that we could point at anything that we could build. And I think that's when you hear about Basecamp and 37 Signal success, people forget that at the point, I think they had about 50,000 uniques per month going to their blog. So when they launch a SaaS product, Yes, they get to two, three, four thousand month in MRR right off the bat because they had built that audience, right? So I learned that's a really good strategy, right? Like build things that are assets. And when we got acquired, it actually was a really meaningful part of the acquisition. Yeah. So it's like that stuff I couldn't have talked about right away. It was too raw. It was too real. And I think it requires time. But yeah, I'm not a fan of success theater, I think, or success porn, as you said. I think that it doesn't help anybody learn. And we are seeing this trend of people being more honest about what they struggle with. Dude, like this is what's funny, man. I struggle every day. Like there's no day that I wake up that it's not hard. Now, what's changed around all aspects? Because I'm driven on all aspects on the health side, on the business side, on the relationship side, on the father side, on the being a good friend, spiritual, all that stuff. I just don't spend as much time in the shit, you know what I mean? Or the chaos. And what I mean by that is something bad happens in any aspect of my life. I can, I don't need to spend, I don't dwell on like in the past, I might've taken three days. I've, there was days. Okay. Not long ago where I would take literally two to three days out of my work week and just Netflix and just stay in bed and screw the world. I don't want to talk to anybody. And now that would just seem so juvenile to do. 
So it's not that things aren't a struggle. It's just, I spend less time in it and I'm getting better at understanding what I need to do to get through things and also prioritize and understand like, you know, at the end of the day, man, like none of this stuff really matters. Like I said this, this tomorrow, this morning, because (laughs) this is so funny. One of my buddies posted on Facebook. Hey, uh, you know, him. I'll just say it. Aaron Ross. Okay. Aaron, I'm calling you. I'm not calling you out because it's actually kind of interesting. Aaron Ross from Predictable Revenue posts a photo of himself topless on Facebook. And I was looking at my feed and I go, oh, Aaron looks fit. Like, I don't know if you saw that photo, but I was like, yeah, good for Aaron. And then his message was actually, this is my commitment to get back into shape. It's been way too long since I've worked out. And then I realized, which is a really interesting belief that I heard a long time ago was that for a lot of us, our worst days are other people's dream cases. So here I am seeing a guy that in his case, he feels like he's not in shape and I'm looking like, man, he's getting fit. And I thought it was like a progress pick of his transformation, right? So yeah, I think perspective just gives you that over time. And you realize like in the grand scheme of things, some of the stuff that are stressing you out. And I mean, early days, the stuff that aren't even true that you think about that are stressing you out. Now it's like, okay, it's things that actually happened and I need to deal with it. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to kill me. I should be grateful for these problems et cetera, et cetera. So that's the way I think about it. How do you keep your own sort of mental and physical well-being so that you don't end up spending like days on end watching Netflix, but rather are this driven individual doing, as you said, all these five things, habits? Yeah, I think people think it's willpower. It's a bunch of stuff. Environment definitely is the number one thing, right? So making sure that you're really thoughtful about your environment, your work environment, your peer group, et cetera. But habits are the things that get you through when everything else would pull you down right? So like, I don't meditate because I want to be a pure yoga, like some kind of friggin' spiritual junkie. I meditate because it helps with the self-talk, right? It helps me be aware that, hey, guess what? In our minds, we actually have two different parts. We've got the ego and we've got the self and all the shit and the negative and the judgment, that's the ego and all the pure love and oneness, et cetera, is the self. And if I don't meditate, all of a sudden I notice that that conversation gets louder from the ego. Same thing with eating sugar. Turns out, and I've felt it personally, that if you have shit food in your diet, it actually increases the negative self-talk, the fear, the worry, all this stuff, the posture syndrome, right? So to me, it's all about deciding. I mean, at the core of it, it's just, you got to hit rock bottom. You got to say enough's enough. In every moment of my life, like I used to drink, I quit drinking when my wife told me she was pregnant because I was like, I don't want to introduce that into our relationship with our kids. And I want to break the cycle. My mom was an alcoholic. Then it was, oh, I was like 40, 50 pounds overweight. I don't like myself. I just sold my company. I realized like, okay, here I am really wealthy, but I don't even feel good about myself. That's kind of messed up. So it's kind of like, you know, unfortunately, sometimes not anymore. This is the interesting part is sometimes you need to hit a rock bottom now because of those habits and that mindset. Now it's just a decision to add something, not because you need to, but because you want to be better. Right. So it's kind of neat where the flywheel eventually takes over and you're like on this upward spiral. So you don't need to. And I think a lot of people get addicted to the chaos. I coach a lot of clients. Look, my clients are 10 million plus ARR B2B SaaS founders, high performers. And every once in a while, I have to have a very direct and strict conversation with them about how they're enamored with chaos, where they need, they don't feel useful unless they're putting out a fire. And most of the time, their hand grenades, they, they, they threw in their own business. It's self-inflicted, which is hilarious. From my perspective, it's obvious from theirs, they're in shock. They're like, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. And I'm like, no, man, I'm, 
You, nobody told you to do that. You did it. You didn't talk to your team. You didn't follow any of the frigging operating model that we created. And now you're dealing with your repercussions. So that's always fascinating, man. I, I really believe like in the early days, it's the basic stuff, right? So the morning ritual, the health, eat for fuel, not for the mindset and numbness and the alcohol and the drugs and all these, that stuff, right? But then at a certain point, the next level, because this is where I think a lot of people come to me for, because it's not about the tactics anymore, right? I mean, I coach click funnels. I mean, what am I going to teach those guys about marketing? Like they're arguably their fastest growing SaaS company, bootstrap zero to hundred million in five years. What I bring to the table is the mindset and leadership skills, right? Because as long as they want to be part of the operating team, the executive leadership team, they need to upgrade their skills because that is, it has an exponential impact to the rest of the organization. And as an individual, me leveling up my skill actually has a crazy impact on my wife and my kids and my family members and my community. So, and that's like the next level that I think a lot of people eventually get to if they keep at it, but it's not as obvious nor as a big of a motivator in the early days. For a lot of people in the early days, it's just vanity, right? It's ego. I just don't want to be fat. And that's totally fine. But here's what happens, Alex. At some point, you'll not be fat and you'll realize you're still the same person. <laughs> like nothing's changed about the way you feel about your self-worth. You're just not, your body fat's not what it was, but you're still yeah. not happier. It's so fascinating to me. Final question, Dennis. I know we're running out of time, a little bit over time, but I can't help but enjoy talking to you and could probably talk all day. Your advice, what is your final piece of advice to founders and executives that maybe they've had similar struggles to what you've had or just general challenges in running their businesses? I'm going to leave it with a Will Smith quote. It's not even a quote. It's a, you can Google it, Will Smith. It's uh, running and reading the secrets of life. And he says it best and with a lot more energy and, and just perfect. But I watched this video a decade ago, maybe it just summarized everything, right? Like we need to feed our minds to have perspective and awareness of what's possible, right? So that's why we need to read. Just like we take a shower every day, we should read every day because we should continuously want to feed that. I mean, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are famous for saying that they could do anything. They would just read more because they understand the ROI on that that knowledge. So that would be one. And then the running, it's not about running per se. It's the mental toughness that you develop when at first you can't run a mile. And what's funny is I was talking to my friend yesterday, we were at the park with our kids and he's like, yeah, I'm thinking of starting to train for half Ironman. And I looked at it. I was like, dude, you don't need to train for half Ironman. You go do it tomorrow. And he's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, well, then just what you need to do is just not be your fat. Like, you know it. That's why you want to do half Ironman. Like, there's no training. Like, just don't get to a point where you need to do something so dramatic as run a half Ironman. And what I love about the running is the idea of like, is pushing yourself, right? It's that conversation. Like, there's actually, man, and this is something I've definitely been studying a lot in the last six months is just how do you develop mental toughness? That is an interesting, and it's not about doing a tough mutter. It's not about doing an Ironman. I think there's a way to systematically walk through a process to really become somebody that knows how to reduce the pressure and noise in a belief, like in the mind, you know, the negative self-talk. And so not to reduce it, but also reconstruct their values and belief systems in a way that that negative self-talk doesn't even show up. And that's what I've been really fascinated uh, lately on. So at the core, if you guys want to grow your businesses, you can start by running and reading. Everything else will be unfolded in due time. And dude, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And as I say, wish we could go on. Dan, where can people find you online? 
Yeah. If you want the best SaaS strategies for growth, YouTube at Dan Martell, two L's of Martell. You can literally Google or search any term around sales and marketing and customer success, et cetera. Your issues in my name and you'll find a video on it. And then Instagram is a fun one for me because it'll show the other half of my life, which is the family, friends, and, and crazy antics I get into. And I'm trying to share more behind the scenes. It's kind of the cool work I get to do with the founders that I coach. And then danmartell.com, 2 L's of Martell on the web. I got a bunch of stuff on my blog if you guys want to download some cool resources, etc. But I'm on the internets. Awesome. Well, Dan Martell, thanks for being such a great guest today on The Struggle, courtesy of the SaaS Revolution Show. Thank you for sharing your story, your struggles, lots of learnings there. A pleasure as always. Thanks very much, Dan Martell. My pleasure, Alex. Thanks so much. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Struggle with Dan Martell. If you can be as honest and open as Dan or any of our other guests we've hosted on The Struggle, get in touch and send us your story on podcast at sastop.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.